Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. This morning, I kind of wanted to share with you a little bit of what I've been working on and starting the doctorate program at Southern Seminary. I've started my dissertation, and it is on the original sin. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief glimpse into it, and uh, it was a little difficult for me to turn a paper into a sermon, so bear with me today, but pastor warned me that if people's eyes aren't glazed over, then it's not working and it's not scholarly, so you will be my test today to see whether or not I'm on the right track. But I'll tell you, after that last song, church could end right now and I'd be happy. Amen? What a great song. But in summary today, I want to tell you that man was created as a perfect, sinless being by God. He was a reasoning being with the ability to understand and the responsibility to mature in God-likeness through a daily relationship with God. God's intimate relationship with man made him a target, though. And that kind of goes into original sin this morning. We're going to touch bases in Roman, 1 Timothy, but primarily we're going to be in Genesis 3 this morning. Man was created as a perfect, sinless entity of God. He was created as a perfect, spiritual, physical, intellectual, and moral being. He had no taint or tendency to sin, but was righteous with a love for holiness and inclined to follow God or choose rightly. He was not created equal to God in the sense that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and unchanging. But he was created in the image of God. He was a rational or reasoning being with the ability to understand and the responsibility to mature in God-likeness through that daily relationship to God. You see, God wanted this relationship to be founded in a mutual love here. God formed man so that he was inclined to love God, but was not forced to love God. Man was inclined to listen and obey God, but he was not forced to listen and to obey. God expected and still expects man to obey him out of love for him. You see, the love of God for man and God's intimate relationship with us makes us a target of another of God's creations. The Bible gives us no explanation for the existence of Satan and evil before the fall of man. Though it does tell us that Satan's sin was pride. The anointed cherub thought and understood better or could do better and led better or could lead better than God's almighty army. Therefore, God cast Lucifer down. When? I'm not exactly sure. Some theologians maintain that it was after the creation of man, though it was generally agreed that the fall of the angels preceded the creation of man. So this morning I want to briefly go over four topics here that talk a little bit about the original sin and how it pertains to us in our Christian walk. First, a new character is introduced in chapter 3, verse 1 in Genesis. 
says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent is called the craftiest beast of the field. It is a direct parallel to Satan. The serpent soon shows himself to be an enemy of God and a subverter of the human race. Scripture attests that this serpent is Satan. Now, Satan has been characterized by so many writers, actors, writers, artists, comedians, and most people don't believe the devil exists. Or if they do believe he exists, they don't take him very seriously. And although we don't understand much about his origin, we know that Satan is real. Satan is an enemy. And quite frankly, Satan is very dangerous. Here in Genesis 3, Satan is compared to the serpent, an image that's repeated in 2 Corinthians 11.3. In Revelation 12, he's called a dragon. And both names are combined in 20 verse 2. But Satan is not only a serpent who deceives, he's also a roaring lion that devours. Among his names are Abaddon, Apollyon, which means destroyer. Satan, which means adversary, and devil, which means slanderer. See, in John 8, verse 44, Jesus called Satan a murderer and the father of lies. He also called him the evil one and the prince of this world. Paul and John also called the devil the evil one. And Paul said Satan was the god of this age, the ruler of the world system, and the leader of demonic forces of evil. He's the great deceiver who will eventually deceive the whole world into believing his lies. Again, I said earlier, Satan is a subverter of the way and will of God. He is deceptive and cunningly powerful, and God's people must be careful not to give him a foothold in their lives. That's why we study. That's why we apply God's word so we will not fall into his traps. Now let's look at the strategy that Satan uses and he used against Eve with the original sin. First, or secondly, in case you were counting, secondly, we talk about the strategy here. The first thing this real serpent which has been perverted and indwelt by the spirit of Satan does is open up a conversation with the weaker vessel, Eve. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, we know that this is temptation, the first temptation. But a temptation is really an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Let me explain. It's a good thing to pass a school test, is it not? But it's bad to do it by cheating. It's a good thing to pay your bills but a bad thing to steal the money to pay for them. In essence, Satan said to Eve, I can give you something that you need and that you want, and you can have it now, and you can enjoy it now. But you see, Satan was using this as an opportunity to trip us up, and he tripped Eve there. Satan disguised himself. Satan didn't want to be seen for who he really is. He's a clever imitator who disguises his true character. 
If necessary, he can even masquerade as an angel of light. When he came into the garden, Satan used the body of a serpent whom God had previously pronounced good. I've never seen a good snake, but apparently he was good. Eve didn't seem disturbed by the serpent's presence or its notice anything threatening about this encounter. Perhaps Eve hadn't even been introduced to the species and concluded that it had the ability to speak. You see, Satan still works today as the great impersonator. He has produced a counterfeit righteousness that comes only by faith in the Savior. Satan has false ministers who preach a false gospel. And he has false brothers and sisters who oppose the true gospel. The devil has gathered his counterfeit Christians into false churches that God calls synagogues of Satan. And in these assemblies, Satan's deep secrets are taught. Second, Satan questions God's word. His strategy begins by casting doubt upon the divine word of God. He suggests that God could not possibly mean when he said, Did God really say that? He calls it into question. He gets us doubting. He gets us believing that it's not so bad. A little sin here is not going to mean too much. I can just repent later, right? That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to make it look appealing. He wants our hearts to long for the wrong because that is our nature. We long for the wrong, as they say. But that's when we push God aside and we buy into that temptation. Like I said, 2 Corinthians 11.3 makes it clear that Satan's target was Eve's mind and that his weapon was deception. By questioning what God said, Satan raised doubts in Eve's mind and he raises doubts in our mind concerning the truthfulness of God's word and the goodness of of God's intentions. Did he really mean that you can't eat from every tree? That was the implication of this subtle question. If God really loved you, is he or was he really wanting what was best for you? He would be much more generous. He's holding out on you. We heard these questions before. Next, Satan distorts what God says. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. God had said you can eat from all but one. You see, Satan wanted Eve to forget that God had told Adam, who had told her, that they could eat freely of the trees of the garden. And for their own good, there was a prohibition. They didn't dare eat from the forbidden tree in the middle of the garden. The serpent thus baits the woman to draw her into dialogue with him. She is lured into thinking about what Satan wants for her to think about. Satan sets her up so she thinks she knows and understands better that the serpent, that she has the upper hand. How often do you feel like that with temptation? I've got, I've got a hold of this. I can stop this at any time. Sin is not going to drag me away from my belief and my faith in God. Temptation is not a part of my life. 
I'm in daily study. I pray to God. I attend service. How could temptation possibly pull me away from God? Eve's reply showed that she was already following Satan's example and altering the very word of God. Verses 2 and 3 says, And you'll see that she omitted the words freely and surely. And she added the phrase, or touch it. Not once was that mentioned by God, but she adds these words and distorts it. How many preachers, theologians, are adding to the word of God? And of course, history continues to repeat itself. Everywhere today, people add to, they alter, they omit God's word, usually to fit themselves, to fit their situation, as to not make them feel guilty for what they do. The will of God is resisted. The word of God is rejected, and the way of God is deserted. Fourthly, Satan denied God's word. In verse 4, Satan substituted his word for God's word. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. This statement is a direct contradiction to God's word. In uh, chapter 2, verse 17, which is, you will surely die. Satan is a liar. God is the God of truth. Our response to what God says should be, therefore all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. At this point, Eve should have reminded herself of God's word, believed it, left the serpent, and found her husband. It's when we linger in the place of temptation that we get into trouble. Especially when we know what we're thinking is definitely contrary to what God's belief is for us. God's truth, our sword and our shield... But it protects us only if we take refuge in it. We have the choice. God's not forcing anything on anybody. But we follow his precepts because we have the love of God. And that our love is shown by our obedience to him. In verse 5, Satan suggests that God is holding back something very important and very good from her. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan substitutes his lie in here again. You will be like God. Meaning you can decide what is right and wrong for your own self, just like God is doing for you now. God has given us the power to decide for ourselves has always been the rallying cry of those who reject the biblical revelation. It does not matter whether they espouse godly humanism, materialism, or the so-called new age religion. It isn't new at all. It's as old as Genesis 3. When Satan wants to gain control over us as he did Eve, he often entices us to doubt God's integrity. He told Eve, in the day you eat from it, which was the forbidden fruit, 
Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan sets the direction he wanted Eve to go and whispers secret fantasies and powers. Isn't that how we are enticed? We are approached by individuals, people who are in power, and they want to tell you how it is. They have their own philosophy of what is good. They have their own thoughts of what is okay, what's acceptable. Satan was implying that God is not out for your best interests. But if you decide what is right and wrong for yourself, you can do better for yourselves. How many of us get in trouble when we have that thinking? I can take care of this by myself. I don't need God's help. This is so minor. He's probably not even listening. He probably doesn't even care. He's got other things to deal with. See, the devil knew that once Eve doubted the goodness of God, he could deceive her into thinking in his way. All the while thinking she was having it her way. That is the deception of Satan. That is the sin. That is the number one. That is the original sin there. Satan convincing us that the way we are is the way we want to be. But that is not how we were created. God clearly states it. This is not the way we're supposed to live. We were created to have fellowship with God. We were created to love God. And in that love, we demonstrate the obedience. We don't fall into temptation. That's where we were created to be. We may not think we doubt God, but when we doubt his word... We are doubting him. Events happen in our life, and Satan tells us God doesn't have our best interest in mind. How many of us have maybe have doubted that during this time? That maybe God has a hidden agenda, and you need to watch out for yourselves. You see, the devil knew that once Eve doubted the goodness of God. Never doubt God's Goodness. Even when our trials seem beyond our understanding, we can trust that God uses these things for our eternal good. Don't put a question mark where God has put a period. The establishing of right and wrong in God's dominion alone. Satan was telling Eve, you should decide what is right and wrong for yourself. He still tells us the same thing. Trying to be the God of our own life is deciding what is right and wrong for our life. God must be God. You are not God. I am not God of my life. When I, try to, when I try to, I fail miserably. I'm sure you can attest to the same. The original sin which caused the fall of mankind is trying to be the God of our own life by deciding what is right and wrong for our life instead of letting God be God. Rebellion against God's right to decide what is right and wrong is the very heart of mankind. 
or heart of the fall of mankind. It is the central issue of original sin. Satan told her to go ahead. Make your own decisions. You know what's right and wrong for you. You are free to do so. God has given you the power to decide for yourself. So go ahead. Make that decision, Eve. You certainly will not die. It is your right. But deciding the right and wrong of moral actions is not a God-given right. For thousands of years, the enemy has repeated this strategy. He doesn't care if you believe in the authority of the Bible as a whole. As long as he can get you to disbelieve that God has the right to be the God of your life, he can stand between you and God. You will surely, you will not surely die, we are told. And that is the theme of so many modern novels. The hero and the heroine live in disobedience to God, but suffer no consequences. In TV shows and movies, the characters rebel against the moral laws of God, but can live happily ever after. There's even a perfume called My Sin. It's a fragrance so alluring, so charming, so exciting, the ad tells us. We could only call it my sin. You would never guess that sin is a stench in the nostrils of God. There is even more temptation that we face each and every day. If we choose to believe Satan's lies, we will fail. Or will we succeed if we obey God's word? Do you see the two lies? You will cheat yourself out of good by not doing it and it will do you no harm. Romans 1 uh, verses 18 through 32 describes how Gentile civilization from the time of Cain rejected the truth of God and turned to foolishness and lies. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather, rather than the creator. Speaking about Satan, Jesus said, For he is a liar and the father of lies. In defiance of God, human exchange God's truth for that lie. They follow Satan, who is the father of all of it. So what is the lie in the singular form that has ruled civilization since the fall of man? It's the belief that men and women can be their own God and live for the creation and not the creator and not suffer any consequences. In other words, what do you do when you're by yourself? When there is no immediate consequence to your action? It's not going to hurt anybody, so what's the deal? That's how we allow Satan to get a foothold in our life. So what's the tragedy of all this? Verse 6 shows the one who is led astray now leads others astray. So how, do, how does it hurt anybody else? Because by your actions, you may be leading somebody else down that path with you. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. 
And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Eve sinned because she was attracted to the fruit of the forbidden tree. She was walking by sight and not by faith in God's word. Genesis 3, 6 explains this, and it parallels to the verses we read this morning. Good for food with the lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes with the lust of the eyes. Desirable to make one wise with the pride of life. These are the things that motivate the people of the world today. When God's people start thinking like the world, they start living like the world. Adam made a choice. He made the wrong choice. And because of that, humanity has suffered ever since. The bite of sin leaves far more than a bitter aftertaste. Sometimes I wonder why God didn't make the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden ugly, not desirable, not pleasing to the eyes. Why not surround it by a chain link fence with barbed wire at the top? Why did God even create the tree in the first place? A possible answer is that temptation to do, disobey, brought Adam and Eve face to face with the ultimate moral question. Would they believe God? Would they trust God and show confidence in their creator and lovingly obey him with all their heart? We face similar tests in our everyday choices. What are we going to do? Will we trust God? Or will we flunk the test of obedience, even if we think we are right? Life is not a test of how wise we become, but how obedient we become. Along life's roads are obstacles and choices become a test. Help us, O Lord, to know your way that we may choose what's best. Sin opened up a whole new world, a whole new reality to them. Satan promised that they would be like God and know good and evil, but they become like him and not like the one true God. Adam and Eve lost their innocence for the first time, had a personal realization, just like we have a realization, what it meant to sin. It wasn't necessary for their happiness that they have this knowledge. And it would have been far better had they obeyed and grown to become more like God. It wasn't necessary that they eat it. They had plenty of food. There were plenty of other trees in that garden. We always say Christianity is a true test of our faith to God. What we do with this life is our gift to God. Why did our Lord Jesus curse the fig uh, tree? Why are we told that Adam and Eve sewed figs together to hide their condition? You see, the fig tree was the only thing our Lord cursed upon the earth. Could Jesus be portraying that what man uses to hide his shame, instead of confessing it, is directly under the Lord's curse? Interesting questions. The exercises we do to cover up our broken relationship with God does us no eternal benefit. 
In other words, why are we hiding? Why are you hiding? He sees you. I might not see your sin. You may not see my sin, but God sees it. And that's what matters. We're not fooling anybody. Because I know if there is sin in your life, it's going to come out. And this is not me having a parental talk with y'all. Not giving you a lecture. We've been there, right? This is just to open our eyes to the truth. To open ourselves to the will of God. To understand that temptation is real. To understand that Satan is real. And they are very, very dangerous. If we don't allow God to be God. In verse 8 we find God still seeking relationship with the fallen man. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Humans are so constructed that they must believe something. If they don't believe the truth, then they'll eventually believe lies. But if they believe lies, they will have to suffer the consequences that always come when people reject God's truth. When we decide to make our own decisions of right and wrong for our lives and even for life itself, we have willfully separated ourselves from God. Essentially, we hide from him. Because of what they had done, they begin making their own choices. And because of their sinfulness, they choose to hide from God. They no longer wanted to enjoy their evening fellowship with the Lord in the garden. Adam admitted, I was afraid. Trying to hide from the Lord is certainly a futile endeavor. Amen? And yet guilty sinners still attempt the impossible. Because they are uncomfortable in the presence of a personable, sinless, all-knowing, always right God who wants the best for those from whom he fellowships with. In conclusion, Paul tells us that Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone because for everyone has sinned. There are those who would say this was a physical death that Adam and Eve were created to live forever. Really? Think about it. The first command for the first couple was to reproduce, so eventually things would have gotten probably pretty crowded. I lean more to the theory that this was a spiritual death. We were created to live with God forever. And Adam and Eve's actions led us down a path of separation from God or to a spiritual death. And now we have to choose to live with God forever. It's no longer the default. But the question wasn't what is or isn't original sin or even what were the consequences original sin were. The question was why does all of humanity have to suffer with sin because Adam sinned one time. Doesn't seem quite fair, does it? 
I spent a lot of time with this topic this year, as it is, again, a dissertation topic of mine. And the analogy I thought of this week that made it most clear is actually a sports analogy, which is kind of weird for me because I'm kind of turned off to sports at the moment. But it was a good analogy and kind of put it in perspective. But anyways, the analogy, Drew, was that if you are on a particular team, then all the team suffers for the actions of one player, and we are all on one team, Adam. So when a player gets a penalty, the entire team pays the price. They are playing shorthanded or they lose yardage. Their game is thrown off. Even though it wasn't their fault, that is part of being on a team. The upside of that is that when a player is assessed the penalty and they serve that penalty and maybe later make a great play, even though the rest of the team may not have directly been a part of that great play, they all benefit from that play. And even though we are all on Team Adam, we don't have to stay on that team. Understand that. It's not a given. It is not a default that we stay there. We have to contribute. And yes, we will make mistakes. And yes, we will drag the team down. But we get in there after that and we make a great play. We understand that we can still contribute. Even though I am a sinner, I can do good through God as my Savior. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it and will live in triumph over sin. They will triumph over death. All through one man, Jesus Christ. To stay with the sports analogy, we might be on a particular team, in this case, Team Adam, but we don't have to stay there. We are all, as you would call, free agents, so to speak. We can choose to become a member of another team. And while we may not feel it is fair that we have to pay the consequences of Adam's sin when we were part of his team, and we still are, in the same way, we can enjoy the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice when we join his team. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So while it might not be seen, or it may not seem fair, that we all bear the consequences of Adam, we also benefit from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the scandal of grace, and that doesn't really seem fair either. And folks, yes, sin and death are reigning in this world, 
but grace and righteousness are also reigning through Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ moves us out of Adam and into Christ, and we are accepted in his righteousness. Amen? The result of sin is a hiding from God because you are no longer comfortable with him deciding what is right and wrong for your life. As long as we are deciding what is right and wrong for our life, or trying to be the God of our own life, instead of letting God be God, we will separate ourselves from him and we will hide ourselves from his fellowship and presence. Stop hiding. Understand that we're all part of this team. We help each other. We gain understanding from experiences. We gain understanding by reading God's word. We gain knowledge by the application of all this. Don't fall into temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that there is sin in our life that sometimes we just can't seem to shake. We've struggled silently for so long against it. We've dismissed it. We've justified it. We've tried to convince ourselves that it isn't as bad as we know it really is. Lord, we know Satan desires for us to leave our sin in the dark. This morning, we confess it to you. We bring it to light. Lord, we need your strength to defeat this sin. We are thankful that your power is made perfect in our weakness. We don't boast in our sin, but we boast in you who works in our weakness to make us more like you. We know that we have the opportunity to glorify you by fighting against this sin in our life. Lord, give us wisdom and perspective in that moment we are tempted to sin. Help us in that moment see our sin as you see it and not do the sin that our heart longs to do. Lord God, who will save us from this body of death? Thanks be to you. Thank you, God, for rescuing us and saving us from our sinfulness. It is only in your grace that we are saved. And we are so thankful to you for that truth. And I pray this morning as David will come and lead us in the final song this morning. I pray that we lift it up to you. Let our words of praise be a sweet sound in your ear. And all of God's people said... Amen. Let's end the service with just thanking the Lord this morning. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so and free. Hallelujah for that. Amen. Thank you.
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.